Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode is part three of our three-part series with Eric Helms from 3D Muscle Journey, where we discuss all things to do with Eric's nutritional hierarchy from his manual, the Muscle and Strength Pyramid Nutritional Manual. In this episode, Eric and I discuss the final part of the hierarchy, supplements. We also discuss lifestyle habits and behavior traits that are also very important for long-term dietary success. I hope you guys really enjoy the show. Eric Helms, it is an absolute pleasure, sir, to have you come back on to the podcast. And I should say, Dr. Eric Helms, congratulations on getting your PhD. So just for the listeners, let's uh, just um, fill us in on what's been happening in the world of Eric Helms and give us a little background on um, the PhD and how all that went. For sure. Well, thanks for having me on again. Always an honor, Robbie. Um, as far as what's going on in my world with the PhD, uh, I started that back in 2014. Um, consulted with uh, Mike T. Mike Tuchere, he was the kind of the godfather of um, RPE use in powerlifting, and um, got kind of his blessing and uh, encouragement to, to to do what I wanted to do, which was to take a look at the scale and investigate it and take a lot of the anecdote uh, that that he had developed high quality anecdote and then do some actual research on it. Um, ran into Mike Zerdos along the way, found out that he was already doing this kind of research, but hadn't published any of it yet. Hopped on board with him. He became my tertiary supervisor. And then the last three years has been running around Auckland and powerlifting gyms, collecting data on that and multiple different studies. And then going out to Florida Atlantic university and conducting a pretty big training study out there and just recently defended. So, yeah, now we're just trying to pump out all the publications, and I'm just trying to uh, take in what's happened in the last three years. Yeah, so, I think we last yeah. time we, last time we spoke, you, I asked you like, how does it feel to be done and dusted? Like, is it a relief? Or and you were kind of still processing at the time because I think it was only two weeks or so after you defended it, and you know, since then, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's what we were about six, seven weeks post your your defense. How are you feeling now? Is it still a bit surreal? It is a bit surreal, and I think it's because I just went right back into working. You know, like like nothing really changed. You know, mm. um, the period where you well you examine your thesis before you go and defend. Um, just waiting. Uh, there's not much to do, so I obviously I'm I'm not a uh, a not busy person. So I kind of my life just continues into it. I defended, and then I continued afterwards. Did some revisions and. And submitted, and that was kind of it. So, um, but yeah, it's kind of this kind of slowly building, nice, warm, fuzzy feeling of, hey, yeah, shit, I did that. And uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, December, so we'll actually have the graduation. Great. And I think that'll help having the actual ceremonial uh, aspect to it. I don't think I don't think I, I, I don't think I've ever heard a bodybuilder apparently to say warm, fuzzy feeling. Hmm. You don't know the right bodybuilders and powerlifters, bro. That's the problem. <laughs> That's, the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. And uh, one final thing before we move into our topic today of the supplements and lifestyle and behavior. Uh, did, did you finally get that proper quotation for uh, for Mike Tashir's book? 
the proper quotation. Or the, Which you, one? The, the, or the quite sorry, oh, the, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry the, yeah. the reference. Excuse me, not the quotation. The reference. You, I think you were saying. I, no, think, I think you were saying that yeah. you must be the the first person to to reference his material in the PhD thesis. Yeah, every time I I try I, I publish uh, something related to RPE. Not every time, but when it's like kind of here's the foundational information. I mention his work cite the reactive training manual. And then during the copy editing phase and publication, they come back and go, so wh- where was this published and who was the publisher? And I go, it was self-published. I don't know what you want me to put. So, yeah, I told Mike T that. And he was like, well, when I redo it, I'll have to get like a legit publisher. And I was like, yeah, just at least for my EndNote file. I would appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, if I do, if I do any, if Mike says, if I do any of my masters, then I might make sure that book is out in the next two years. If That's I, right. If I do any of my purpose. masters, RP, yeah, you can, it'll yeah. help with the citations. Eric, so think about, oh, think about go, Robbie when you do that. <laughs> think about me because it's all about yeah. me. It's so the last, this is actually your fourth time on the podcast, I believe. I think I think I might be equal with Danny with your appearances on Danny's podcast. But uh, the last two podcasts, we discussed your nutrition pyramid from the the Muscle and Strength uh, Pyramid eBooks, which again are fantastic. Um, and it's funny because I've been reading a lot of self-published material lately, and, and when I was rereading, and what and the reason I bring this up is because I see like a lot of grammar mistakes and misquotations and poor citations mm. in it. And when I was going through your manual again, I was like, "There's like no mistakes in this. This is like such good, like such solid content for a self-published book." So I just wanted to say that you can tell you. Him, you can tell him in such a nerd academic mode the fact that I'm back in college right now. But uh, so I suppose supplements are the last thing on the pyramid. They seem to be the least most important things in terms of the hierarchy. So maybe just give us your overall thoughts, ideas, and supplements. And then I've got a list of fairly specific questions here with regards to that chapter, and then also the behavior and lifestyle chapter, which to me was the best chapter almost of the whole book because I think it was just it was something that often gets overlooked in terms of some of the factors you discussed in that. So maybe just starting off real briefly supplements to you like someone says that to you like what does, what does it mean what what are, what are supplements to you and why are they so least important on the hierarchy for sure man and uh, big, first big, big shout out to uh, andrea and andy they're part of the reason why there's not any typos and errors because we went back and forth a ton of times but um yeah so supplements i think if you were to ask your average you know bodybuilder or kind of recreational bodybuilding fan who was serious about training to make their own pyramid of training they would probably create an equal pyramid where every point was was the same value and have training, nutrition, and supplementation on there. Um, at least that's how I, it was presented to me when I first came into it. But in reality, you know, the very word supplement tells you what you need to know. So it's not necessary. It only supplements what you already have, and it's a, just a very, very small addition. Uh, and even when you're using something like creatine or caffeine that has the most research-backed information on it, ever, the kind of changes we're looking at long-term or the effect is something that you probably wouldn't be able to actually tell the difference if you haven't been using it, uh, except for like the acute immediate effects of caffeine or something like that. Mm. But um, So yeah, I think first, the most important thing is putting supplements in context, knowing that they're, uh, the vast majority of supplements that are created in the industry are uh, do not do anything except burn a hole in your pocket, and in some cases can actually be harmful. Um, if you are overdosing on certain things or if they are low quality, um, there's been an alarming and increasing rate of uh, tainted supplements out there mm-hmm. where uh, the quality is either 
degraded to the point of harm or it actually has uh, banned substances in it, either just from cross-contamination or the supplement company is actually trying to uh, get a bit bigger boost out of their supplements, but for not the reasons of, of what's claimed to be on the bottle. Uh, this is especially important for drug-free athletes, so I think it's very important that you seek out re- reputable uh, companies, ideally ones that uh, will send out like batch reports um, and that have, uh, depending on the country they are, some kind of manufacturing quality certification. Um, and, uh, and then after that, you want to make sure, okay, if I trust this company, they have good um, good production qualities, then you want to make sure what you're using is actually based in some kind of evidence and is dosed appropriately. So you want to avoid places that use things like proprietary blends, which is a, a mix that is named something uh, where they don't state the actual dosage amounts for each, each item in there. Um, and that is said to be used to protect the special blend, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this isn't freaking McDonald's special sauce. This is you know, efficacious compounds we're looking for. So if you don't know the actual dosage and the form of every single one of the supplements in a, in a supplement, you probably shouldn't be taking it because it's probably filler, low-dosed, to just try to make you think it's like the kitchen sink approach with nothing in an appropriate dosage. Um, so you want to avoid proprietary blends, um, and, and those Eric, are kind Eric, of the ground just, rules. Just before, just with proprietary blends, sorry to put across you, uh, and, I, and I, obviously I read that again today when I reread over the nutrition part, but what exactly is in proprietary blends? And, and like, just because even when I read that myself, I've heard of it, but, and I know you said it's, it's a group of compounds and they don't really tell you, but, what 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 is it supposed to be, or like what like really what is it like? So proprietary blend is based on uh, U.S. law, uh, where a, a supplement or a food company can say, right, we have a special mix of ingredients, um, and but they're they're ordered like the the amount of each one proprietary because we don't want someone else to copy that. Uh, so what they'll do is they'll have a proprietary blend listed and they'll name it. So it might say. Um, you know, muscle fuel proprietary blend. And then parentheses after that, it will give the all the ingredients, but it won't list the dosage. It'll just put the order of the ingredients as they appear in terms of dosage. Uh, and then they'll give the total gram or milligram amount of, of that proprietary blend as though it was a single item ingredient instead of listing out every single uh, dosage size. Mm. So, for example... You can put in like the top 10, you know, most best research supplements in a proprietary blend, but only put them in like a one milligram amount. You know, you can list creatine monohydrate there and everyone's thinking, oh, cool, creatine's good. But just assuming that you would put in, you know, three to five grams, the effective dose when actually you put in, you know, 100 milligrams of, of creatine. And what, what supplements? So that's the problem. What, what supplements would you usually? Is this just with whey protein supplements, or do you see this in multivitamins? Or are they like it's a proprietary blend? Like, is it in vast amount of supplements, or is it usually just certain types? You can put it in anything, and it's pretty common. You'll see it in pre-workouts. You'll see it in health-related supplements that are kind of claimed to be like elixirs. You'll see it in yeah, yeah, uh, multivitamins, a little added thing. Um, yeah, and and on on the note of you bringing up whey protein, I actually don't really consider like whey protein or proteins supplements for, for as far as effective uh, purposes. So I think for all, inten- for all intents and purposes, I should say, um, I think a good way to look at that is they are powdered protein. So they should be considered kind of all the way back down into that macronutrient portion of the pyramid. Cool. cool. So, yeah. 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 Uh, should, and that was one reason why I was going to ask, like you actually don't, you, you don't specifically have whey protein in the supplement section, but 
you just answered that, that question mm-hmm. right there. So getting into my specific questions, um, and you actually covered some, some of them, I was going to have like proprietary brands was one. Um, and just also one thing, you, you kind of touched on it with regards to quality supplements, but maybe just while we're on the topic, and this was actually a later question, but we'll cover it now, is this concept of third parties coming in and, and kind of giving quality stamp to something that, that was something you recommend for people to look out for. So is, is there any particular um, third parties that you, uh, that you recommend? Yeah, there's a few, and I know that, and I know they differ by country. I'm most familiar with the ones in the, uh, the U.S., but uh, there's GMP, which is the general manufacturing. Uh, there's NSF. There's USP. And these are all things that basically a company would would pay to get these certifications for their facility or processes um, that that basically show, hey, we have uh, good practices with the way we, uh, you know, generate supplements. And that those are awesome to have. Not all companies can afford them, especially smaller ones. Uh, another way of kind of having control of quality is to get, you know, batch reports. So certain companies send out um, reports of here, here's the ingredients of the, the batch that we tested that yours came from, um, and that's always a good sign, obviously. Um, another kind of form of third-party quality control is using licensed versions of certain ingredients. So, for example, sometimes you'll see a, a supplement with creatine in it saying we use, you know, micronized creatine, and there'll be a little TM there, and that that's a, a third-party licensed form of that, or a beta-alanine product or something with beta-alanine in it. We'll say, hey, we use carnison beta-alanine. So these are basically companies that, uh, create a high-quality uh, compound that have a very good reputation and that other companies will actually license to use it to kind of outsource that quality control. So those are all things or a combination or at least a few of those that you want to look for. Then you can always contact the company and ask about their manufacturing processes and, and see if they'll be willing to send a batch test, et cetera, uh, and just see how they respond. That will typically give you a pretty good indication of um, if this is a priority for them or not. Um, but in general, you want to make sure that the quality of where you get a supplement is, is accounted for. And they have a good reputation for that, especially as a drug-free athlete or you're playing with fire. Yeah, I think in the, in the manual here, too, you said that uh, even some companies will actually, like, they'll send, like, um, lab reports to their customers with some of their orders. And like, that, that's a sign of a quality company as well, so they're willing to send lab reports of what's really in their supplements. Yeah, I always think it's a great practice when when they send a batch report of the, of the uh, for the supplement for the supplement. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. All right, so you sound clear as day right now. So hopefully this this will this will stay like that. Um, cool. So the questions I want to get to now was, you know, supplements as you said earlier on, they're to supplement the quality diet. But there is times when someone, for whatever reason, genetically or maybe it's some type of phenotypic expression, so it could be an epigenetic thing too. But they just seem to have or are deficient in some particular nutrient. If you ever suspect that with someone you're working with, do you recommend they go get a blood test? That was one question I wanted to ask. Um, well, I often don't. You know, I, I, I can't think of any instances where I would expect a, a phenotypic or, or genetic-related deficiency in a supplement. Probably the most common time people are going to be deficient in a nutrient is when Sorry. they're dieting. Sorry, I meant yeah, I meant like in a nutrient that they need that they need to supplement for. That's correct. Sorry, that made sense. I yeah, you got you. Yeah, um, yeah. There's some things you should definitely get tested for. Like for example, uh, it's always it's never a bad idea to get a blood test. You know, if you want to see your your nutritional levels of things, and that's like even though something like eighty percent of people in first world nations or right around there um, 
are thought to be deficient in uh, in their their vitamin D levels. Um, doesn't mean everyone should supplement with it. This you know twenty percent of people who probably shouldn't be, uh, or would at least wouldn't benefit from it. So, that, that, um, that's, so that, that's not me and you anyway. I can tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, so I think uh, yeah, it's probably not a bad idea to get your vitamin D levels checked to see if you can uh, before you just consider blanket supplementation. Um, and but but yeah, I would say when someone's dieting. Having kind of a catch-all, uh, low-dose, non-kind of crazy bodybuilder version multivitamin is not at all a bad idea. As most of the time, when you're uh, restricting, end up restricting micronutrients, even with a high-quality diet. And there's a fair amount of research on that. And looking at uh, bodybuilders during contest prep, or even some of the more uh, well-balanced kind of popular diet plans out there, uh, like the Zone or something like that, where where you see a, a pretty consistent lack of um, nutritional uh, quality as far as meeting all their the kind of the RDAs when people go on diets. So that's not that's, that's probably the best time to consider taking a multivitamin. And yeah, it wouldn't be a bad idea at all to get a blood test. Yeah, great stuff. So the next question I wanted to ask was: You often hear people talk about the BCAAs and leucine content in, in whey products. Can you just give your recommendations on that and what people should really be looking for in terms of a ratio thereof? BCAAs or leucine content per serving of a protein powder? Yeah, you won't always be know the exact content there, but um, more or less a good way to look at the the quality of protein is, one, you want a good reputation of a company. Um, two, I wouldn't advise just buying the cheapest protein powder out there or you're at a higher risk of people uh, basically kind of spiking their, their proteins with cheap amino acid combinations that don't have a ton of um BCAs or essential amino acids. So you want to look for something when you look at like kind of the, the comparison of the grams per scoop to the amount of protein in each scoop, like a high quality way that, that actually costs a little more than kind of the baseline should be around like 80% ish. Um, and when that doesn't really quite add up or if it's less than that, it, it's, if it's less than that. It's probably just not a very high quality way because whey protein concentrate can be as little as like, you know, 30% whey. Um, and if it's way higher than that and doesn't cost very much, that should be kind of a red flag. Mm. Uh, and that could be that they're, they're potentially not honest about the, uh, what's actually in the product or they wouldn't be able to get the protein that high with that kind of serving size while still keeping the price down. Uh, or they'd have to get, you know, the, like the, something, something doesn't add up to have a really high percentage of the protein per scoop be, uh, sorry, percentage of the weight of the scoop be, Protein, they need to get some pretty high quality uh, processed whey, you know, uh, something like a whey isolate. So that should cost more. So if there's if those things, if one of those two things doesn't quite add up, then then you probably want to kind of dig a little deeper or or be safe and check out another company. But um, yeah, the pro- protein spiking thing is a real phenomenon. It, more and more awareness is happening of it, and there's some more testing that occurs. So I would hope they're being a little more careful, but still got to be aware as a consumer. I really liked your part on the supplement section about like how to how to decide uh, if a supplement is is worth taking or not. So the supplement validity and um, effectiveness. And I really like if you could share the uh, if you could share the um, story sh- share the story about the aspartic acid or the as as yeah. I'm saying that. Well, you, you'll pronounce that. Deaspartic acid. Deaspartic acid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought that was a really good little uh, story or to get across your point. 
But also, maybe also speak about like um, you know, you said be cautious with new supplements is, is the title of the of the section, in it, and you, you were kind of like saying if there's no support and evidence for a supplement, ignore it. If there is a little bit of evidence, but it's it's uh it's shaky, like you know, sort of um kind of like hold hold off on it. Don't still don't approach it. And then if there is more evidence or strong evidence for it, wait till maybe a second independent group. Um, kind of also proves the same findings. Then it might be worth um, investing in that supplement. But yeah, maybe just speak about like kind of that idea of kind of to decide if the supplements were taken or not, and then the story around that the aspartic. Say that word again. Aspartic. 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 The aspartic yeah. acid. Yeah. yeah. Like you think, be a Spartan warrior. It's the aspartic acid. Very similar. The aspartic acid. <laughs> I got it. Be a Spartan. It. That's all. So, um, so yeah, the uh, I, I think you summarized it quite well there in that you really want to wait for a fair amount of quality evidence before you take a supplement. And I think a lot of people, rather than that, they have a mindset of, you know, look, worst case scenario, it's not gonna, it's not, it's not gonna do anything. Um, and if there's any evidence or even an indication that it could be beneficial, well, shit, I'm just gonna throw it into the stack. I can. And I think what people don't realize is that. Sometimes there's actually a, a real potential for, for harm or at least, you know, being counterproductive. And um, that's probably just people not taking supplements seriously enough, in my opinion. Uh, so a good example would be deaspartic acid, which when it first came out, it, it was marketed as a testosterone booster based on one study on humans uh, that found it roughly increased testosterone, I think, about 30 or 40 percent, if my memory serves me. Um but no other data except on animals. And all of a sudden, supplement companies were, were chucking it in their testosterone boosters left and right. Um, and then a few years later, I believe a study led by Willoughby came out and they looked at deaspartic acid's effect on strength and body composition. And they found that, oh, it actually didn't do anything as far as that, which is no surprise. Most people, you know, just to kind of assume that an increase in testosterone is going to, within the physiological ranges, is going to in- increase performance. Or, uh, or or improve body composition, and it often doesn't. You know, changes within the physiological range uh, to small degrees. Uh, it's hard to see how that would even occur. Um, it's not the same as taking steroids or being a, like a hyper or hypogonadal male. You know, um, so you know, no harm, no foul. I wasted a little money, but then uh, a, a few years later, another study comes out on, on deaspartic acid and finds that the group taking it actually lowered their testosterone levels. So now we're kind of left with this, well, which one is the actual outcome? You know, we could either have a beneficial effect on testosterone, a drop in testosterone, or even though there might have been a benefit to testosterone, no actual effect on performance or strength. So that's one of the ones where you you don't actually know. And that's not something I would if – if they're equally, you know, weighted evidence, then that's a one-third chance of harm and then – you know, a one-third chance of no benefit and a one-third chance of benefit that may actually not benefit the actual things you're trying to change, which is your gym performance or, or body comp. And if you had just gone off that original 2009 study that came out, you know, you'd be thinking, oh, I'm, this, is, this, is a, this is a winner. So what you really want to wait for is preponderance of evidence, a fair amount of studies from independent labs that actually measure directly the outcome you care about, not just a surrogate marker that should hopefully affect it. Uh, and then at that point, that's when you can consider uh, looking for a high-quality supplement company that's producing it. Uh, and I think a lot of people get that backwards. They basically look for anything that has any evidence, uh, whether it's you know some rat study from 1976 or, or whatever, 
and and then spend the money on it because they're looking for gains. D aspartic acid. There it says. Crushed it. You're you're all over it. Man. I know. I, I know. I know. If I didn't say that, I'd be getting shit off all my mates or people listening. To this. You could fucking say that. <laughs> I, I, I I think again, it's because the because. Uh, I'm just worried that the the fucking the, the, the call might drop off and then my mind is somewhere else. So anyway, but uh, so moving on from there, Eric, uh, the way you kind of laid out the supplements within this chapter, um, you have them laid out as daily supplements you recommend, performance based ones, and then these sort of situational based, which I really like. So the daily ones that you went over were multivitamin, essential fatty acids, and vitamin uh, D3. Now, with the multivitamins, you kind of touched on that. Um, you know, it's more for insurance, particularly when you're cutting, because obviously you're taking less calories, so you, you could run into maybe some micro, uh, micronutrient deficiencies, depending on how long your cut is. So maybe then just moving on from that, um, we can just talk about fish oil or essential fatty acids and vitamin D3. And the question for you is, with essential fatty acids, this is a really interesting area for me because you hear such conflicting views on fish oils. Like for, I'd say maybe five, six, seven, eight, maybe ten years ago, everyone was like, fish oil is the greatest thing ever, and they were having these mega doses, and it was going to cure everything. And then some studies came out with some conflicting findings saying that it was actually increasing inflammation, and it was having some detrimental impacts, and maybe even some oxidative damage. Then it was kind of like, well, it's all context dependent, depending on the individuals taking it and like the sort of present state of their body when they take in the oils and the quality of the oils. So, can you maybe just dive into, you know, essential fatty acids and then on to vitamin three a little bit to finish that first, the first part of our question here, which is the daily supplements. Yeah, I. I actually don't think that there was a, any really good quality evidence that came out that said fish oils would be harmful when mm. supplemented with. It's more just uh, but there was, more postulating by people, is it? Yeah, and I mean, the isolated studies versus meta-analysis versus um, multiple meta-analyses, you kind of have to start looking at the conglomeration of evidence. And when you look at the most recent meta-analyses, the data isn't overwhelmingly positive, but it's no no real negatives. I mean, you can look at a meta-analysis that shows, you know, decrease in symptoms of depressive disorder, decrease in waist circumference, and you can see uh, general uh, reductions in in uh, cardiovascular-related uh, mortality. Um, so it's it's probably a net win. But um, yeah, there there are, there are concerns about. Uh, oxidiza- uh, oxidation, um, you know, so so doing things like taking them with a small amount of, you know, it doesn't need to be much at all, uh, vitamin E, which a lot of companies just kind of have that automatically built into it to prevent that, and you've mm-hmm. pretty much sorted that out. Um, and then just making sure that you're focusing on an appropriate amount, not like trying to mega dose it, I think anywhere between one to three grams of EPA, DHA combined which you can look at on, on the back of the label is, is a reasonable intake range to be in and covers the range of pretty much all those health benefits I talked about. Um, and again, just remind yourself that these are supplements. So if you are regularly consuming, you know, fatty fish like salmon or something like that, uh, then you probably don't need to worry about, uh, you know, taking, taking a fish oil. Yeah, very true. Uh, if you were able to, to, to really cover these bases, they just wouldn't be needed. But it's it's one of those things that's kind of a healthy insurance policy that we have really good high quality evidence on. We're talking, you know, each of those markers I mentioned that it improved are meta analyses published within the last three to four years. So I think um, I think that's a safe bet. I think yeah, you're right though. They were hyped up to be the best thing since sliced bread, and there was 
you know, supplement companies advising mega dosing them with, you know, half cocked sort of fitness articles that were really just masked sales. Um, but, uh, based on the, the data we have, I think they're, they're probably here to stay as far as, you know, just knowing that eating, you know, fatty fish seems to be healthy for people is a pretty consistent finding. Yeah, like they, there were some people like recommending like 10 grams a day in mad doses and stuff like that. But uh, just uh, before we move on to vitamin D3 then, or vitamin as, as some of the Americans say, um, hmm. vitamin, vitamin, whatever you want to say, uh, is there any particular thing people should be looking for when they when they get a fish oil? Like should it, should it be should should they be stored in a fridge and should vitamin E be uh, be something that that should be in most of them? And um, I know most quality fish oils have a vitamin E. And other thing is that you know that they're kept in a cool stored area. And like you hear a lot of people saying, if you're getting fish oil and it's on a shelf, you know it probably isn't the best quality because it's it might have oxidized at room temperature or stuff like that. Or is there anything you advise people to look for with a quality fish oil? Yeah, I certainly am not the expert on specific supplements in this case, but. Um, those, those are all things I've, I've, I've also heard and been advised by others, you know, that, uh, they should be stored appropriately. Like you said, cool, not, not, not hit by sunlight. Uh, so often they'll be sold in dark bottles. Um, and that you would, you'd want to make sure that you had, uh, probably again, kind of like the protein, like you can tell the quality of the fish oil by how many capsules you need to take to get to that one to three EPA DHA gram mark. Um, so if you have to take like 10 capsules to get two grams of EPA DHA, that's probably not as high quality of a source as one. Uh, so those are good things to look for, for sure. And then, yeah, small amount of vitamin E is, is pretty common practice to uh, if, prevent any kind of uh, oxidation being an issue. Cool. And then uh, vitamin D3, that, that definitely seems to be a big one. As you said, you know, maybe about 80% of people who are fair-skinned and, and probably in a in a climate where they have long winters, that there are probably some people who are deficient in it. So uh, what are your recommendations there on, on D3? And in terms, is there any particular brands of D3 you like or uh, anything, anything to add there? No, that one's a little more straightforward is the uh, how to ensure quality and there's less risk of harm. I think the main thing there, I would just actually get blood tests done mm. uh, to confirm you actually are deficient. And then, you know, take start with a small amount of supplementation and test it again see if you're actually in, in the appropriate ranges. Um, but, uh, yeah, most people would advise somewhere between, like, 1,000 to 2,000 international units is a reasonable place to start for anyone who is deficient and then to check how that affects you later. And some people only need to supplement seasonally, so just only in, like, the winter, for example, and it's completely unnecessary and potentially too much in the uh, in the summer or when the, when the sun is out. So that would be my advice, and it's not very – it's not expensive at all or difficult to get uh, testing done these days. Yeah, yeah. So th- there are daily supplements. The next one then is creatine and caffeine. So, I mean, we don't spend too long on creatine because it's so well researched. But uh, and maybe just you can briefly touch on it. But caffeine, I, I found interesting in, in that you had this sort of two pronged approach with it. One was to fight off fatigue, um, and you had a different prescription for that in terms of dosage. But then the other one was for performance benefit, and you were kind of very particular on how that should be strategically used. So do you want to maybe just briefly touch on creatine and then get into your recommendations on caffeine? Yeah, creatine is pretty straightforward. It's by far the most researched uh, supplement for strength and power out there and hypertrophy for that matter. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, the dosage range is probably for most people somewhere between two to four grams per day. 
uh, is is all that's needed to reach saturated you know supplemental levels in the body where you get the benefit. Um, and you know that's why loading I don't think is very important. That's something you would only need to do once ever in your life unless you went off it. And there's no real reason to go off it. That's kind of like going off of you know chicken or, or sashimi because it's you know it's present in meats. Uh, and the reason why we have to supplement with it is because it's uh, often lost in the cooking process. So unless you're eating a ton of you know rare steak and, and sashimi, you're probably not uh, getting to the levels that would get you to, get you there without supplementation. Um, so essentially, uh, getting a, this very cheap product, uh, creatine monohydrate, none of the other forms, which None have yet to date been uh, proven to be better than monohydrate, but all are more expensive. Uh, and taking that, you know, either five grams per workout, if you're working out more than three to four times per week, or uh, even just, just two to three grams a day, depending on your body weight, I'd probably say if you're, you know, under 175 pounds or so, or, um, you know, under under 80 kilos, it'd probably take, you know, just two to three grams a day, or maybe three to four if you're above that uh, on the daily, and that will get you to where you need to be. Um and then as far as caffeine, um, caffeine is interesting. You know, it's in more studies have actually come out since I wrote the muscle and strike pyramids. Um, it has a few different effects. Some are central, some are not. Um, but it is in the end a stimulant uh, as one of its functions. And the dosage we're needed to suppress tiredness uh, is a lot lower strength performance or uh, like volume performance for, for, for lifting. Um so that 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 should be known, and typically the the intake required in most people to actually see a performance enhancement for strength or the ability to perform you know repetitions to failure, let's say, is right around you know three to six milligrams per kg. Um, however, the kind of the one to two to three milligrams per kg will be enough to suppress tiredness. Uh, and now there's a lot of data, and it's kind of not incredibly clear on um, habituation and whether or not the effects of regularly taking caffeine will diminish the effects as you continue to take it. Certainly, some elements of, uh, of some of the effects that, that, that are there from caffeine are diminished with, with repeated use um, and habituation, but not all of them. And, in fact, there have been a number of studies now that looked at performance, especially the performance related to uh, resistance training, or at least the mechanisms that we think are improving resistance training performance that indicate that those effects might be less. So it's more likely to the habituation effect is more likely to decrease, say, your performance if you're doing cycling than if you're doing weightlifting. Um, so I'm a little less concerned about that these days, uh, but there probably would be some level of diminished effect. Some of the subjective cognitive experiences of taking caffeine are certainly lessened uh, when you take it regularly. Uh, so if kind of that amped up feeling that you get from your pre-workout is something that uh, you probably wouldn't feel as much if you were to take it every single workout. Um, but these kind of the habituation effects seem to go away after like four days. So you could likely take it once or twice per week um, on your hardest days and not on your other days, uh, and that would give you a pretty big you, – you'd, you'd feel the effects more. Uh, the issue there is that a lot of people take caffeine in some form or another daily uh, as just part of their routine, whether that's coffee or energy drinks, et cetera. So that has to be considered as well. So if you're taking three milligrams per kg before training, uh, but you have another one to two milligrams per kg just daily, um, then the effects would probably be a little less noticeable uh, than if you were not taking those that that, that daily dosage. Um, so, so, 
So you you, you 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 just ever so slightly broke up there on one important point. So were you saying that there was a difference between caffeine intake if, if your training was more strength and power versus more volume based? Were you saying there was a difference there in terms of dosage? I, I kind of slightly missed. I know there's a difference in habituation, the effect of habituation. So regularly taking caffeine and then taking it prior to an aerobic uh, performance will probably have will probably diminish the performance enhancing effects of caffeine more than if you were to do that prior to resistance training. Oh, okay. Because between, of, so between aerobic and resistance training, fine. That's, that's the bit of a mistake. I got you now. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's some effects, interestingly enough, where uh, caffeine seems to affect calcium handling at the local level inside the muscle. And that's, that does not going to go away. It doesn't seem to go away with, um, with habituation to caffeine, uh, unlike some of the, the stimulant effects and the suppression of, of tiredness you those kind of subjective experience of taking caffeine diminishes as you uh, take it more regularly. Great stuff. And just one thing before we move on there, uh, with the creatine, two very interesting things where the, you mentioned that if you're not kind of eating your meat raw, you probably aren't getting the full benefit of it. And it's funny because I, I would eat a lot of my meat, not raw raw, but I like very rare meat, so it's something unique. So I was like, maybe that's a good thing that I'm doing. And then the other thing was that uh, you often can say, when should I take it? And in the manual, you're like, time and really doesn't matter. So I thought that was a very important point to get across to some of the listeners. Um, yeah, and there is there is one study out there where they looked at over four weeks, you know, people taking it post-workout versus pre, and they saw a benefit in post-workout. But what you have to understand is every time you look at a creatine study, they're looking at the initial period where people are still uptaking creatine. Yeah. So you Workout, unless you're only planning. I mean, like as an example, I've been taking 2004. I, I really doubt that at this stage, you know, the whether, whether I take it pre or post workout is going to be changing anything because I'm just topping off the levels. So while that's not an untrue statement that post workout maybe maybe better for uptake than, than pre, at a certain point uptake is no longer the issue, and it's just kind of about topping off your gas tank. Great stuff. And then lastly, you touch on like the situational. Um, supplements, beta-aniline, uh, branched amino acids, and HMB. So if you want to maybe touch into those, and I really liked how you introduced beta-aniline. You were like kind of like saying it's the endurance uh, supplement. Um, uh, it's, it's the endurance equivalent of uh, creatine to a certain degree. Um, and you were kind of saying that maybe if you're doing some more higher volume work, short rest periods, there may be some benefit to your work capacity. Um, but sure, I'll, I'll let you answer or take away there. So yeah, beta-aniline, branched amino acids, and HMB under this umbrella of situational dependent. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just a general rule. You should look at almost every supplement as how how and when can this benefit me? Um, because I think most people just look at them as either black or white, good or bad. You know, you hear beta-alanines in a pre-workout. It's got some studies behind it. Sweet, I'll take it every single time. Uh, but the reality is that most bodybuilders and powerlifters, especially powerlifters or strength athletes, won't get any benefit out of taking beta-alanine because it really doesn't seem to improve performance until you're at that you know, 30 to 30 second mark at least, if not 60 seconds of continuous effort, uh, or repeated efforts with little rest between, um, so that you're really kind of stressing different energy systems. And that's just not really going to be something that, that occurs most of the time. Uh, and maybe if you're doing a very high rep block of training, say if you're doing over 20 rep training almost every, every set, uh, or if you're doing a lot of cardio, you know, if you're, if you're a strength athlete, but you have to supplement that with something else, um, and you're doing a lot of, you know, sprint work or middle distance work, I, I could see a benefit of beta-alanine. 
Um, but for the most part, it's something that is only going to be conditionally helpful for, for bodybuilders and powerlifters. Does, um, it, does it buffer hydrogens in uh, any way? Because you often hear people saying, oh, buffers lactic. We know lactic is not the issue. It's, it's hydrogen ions. And, well, currently, you know, is it a buffer in that regard? Yeah, beta-alanine does act as a buffer. And the, um, you know, when something does buffer, like the hydrogen ions come from the production of lactic acid. So it's yeah. kind of just where does it happen down the stream of metabolic events? So the, um, yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where by that mechanism, probably not. And then that comes out in the performance research. We see that. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely one of the, one of the supplements that you should only consider if you're going to be doing the kind of work that's going to actually be benefited by it. And I think a lot of people they're a little too kind of broad with the net they cast as far as um, you know what what they'll take and when they'll take it. And beta alanine is probably one of the ones that. Is only going to shouldn't be on your list very frequently. I I don't think it's uh, required even for most bodybuilders or, or, or why it would. You have to think how is this going to help me, you know? Um, but yeah, beta. The reason people take beta alanine is to get more muscle carnosine, uh, and carnosine is actually what what buffers uh, buffers metabolites in the muscle. Mm. But beta alanine is the most effective way to get muscle carnosine levels higher. Car- carnosine. So car- anyway, carnosine is a huge player in like mitochondrial energy. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, sure, but that, that's the thing. It's um, we're looking at sixty to two hundred forty second range is, is kind of the sweet yeah, spot, yeah. and that's really not something that that, that bodybuilders or powerlifters or strength athletes in general are going to be working with, uh, unless they're in a very high rep block of training, which you could see would probably be exclusive to bodybuilders. But that's not necessary. You don't have to train that way, and it's probably not the best way to train, in my opinion, uh, unless you're just really masochistic. Um, but I, I could see it if you're doing sprint intervals during prep, maybe, or something like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for the most part, I think it's something that more uh, athletes who are, you know, if you're reading my book, you're doing resistance training of some type. So maybe yeah. it's not, maybe, maybe I, I could see a CrossFitter definitely better benefiting from uh, beta alanine, mm-hmm. for example. Definitely. So then with, with BCAAs, then, I mean, there, there wasn't a whole lot to BCAAs. The one really good thing uh, was that you were like, do people notice on like one study looking at BC, like one real good study, and the study was a poster presentation, and like it wasn't even great, a great study. And he's, you were just kind of like, so why are you were just kind of like, why is everyone jumping on this BC double A bandwagon? And then, but I suppose again, it's situational dependent. There might be a place for it then, maybe in in a in some sort of fasted um, training situations. But is there anything else, or, or has anything new come to your mind since you since the mind came out on BC double no, if anything, since I wrote the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, the evidence has gotten weaker for BCAAs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I, I include them is because they're one of them, well, historically, in the last 10 years, they've been one of the most taken supplements by bodybuilders. Mad, isn't um, it? Like, given yeah, the, the poor research, that's, that's mad. Yeah, p- poor research, good marketing. You know, it's kind of one of those things. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, also, it's also one of those times where it's like, sure, BCA can do X, Y, and Z, but why wouldn't you just eat protein or why wouldn't you just eat carbohydrate? And that's yeah. true of almost like 90% of the studies where you do see a beneficial effect. It's like, right, but that's if I'm fasted and I'm unwilling to take, uh, you know, protein or carbohydrate, which in almost every case you can't think of why because it's not like BCAs are calorie-free, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes the the effects are, 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 are not there. You know, for example, um, there's a study looking at taking either BCAA – 
or uh, carbohydrate prior to performance and BCA but didn't increase performance. You just feel better. Um, and, you know, so the only time I've actually ever seen BCA be better than something else is in a completely fasted state with depleted glycogen. Uh, and it seems to improve aerobic performance. Again, something bodybuilders and strength athletes wouldn't care about uh, compared to carbohydrate because, you know, carbohydrate maybe is trying to get partially, you know, they're trying, it's trying to be stored as glycogen. It's also being used in the blood to feel the performance. And maybe for immediate aerobic performance, BCA gets a little there a little faster. But uh, the real question is, is, well, why wouldn't you just train later or don't go into it fasted, et cetera? Um, but yeah, it's almost always outperformed by you know essential amino acids, so full 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 protein, or in states of not completely glycogen depleted uh, carbohydrate in general. So I I struggle to find any situation where I think BCA would be a useful supplement, and um, even when it does trigger uh, protein synthesis, you know you still need the building blocks and then do something with it. So I, I think BCA is probably inferior compared to. Uh, something that has all the essential amino acids like actual whey protein. Yeah, I think, um, so uh, yeah, there's not a lot of good evidence. I, I think it was on one of Danny's episodes, and he was just he was talking about. I think it was like maybe one of the ones where listeners sent in questions that Danny was answering, but it was definitely Danny's podcast. And I don't know, I don't know if, if this was actual research or was it just a conclusion, but like what I got from it was that basically just taking a whey protein like a half an hour an hour before would, would be way better than just sipping on BC eggs. In terms of like yeah, a full, uh, full amino acid profile in your bloodstream, I would agree. Uh, and then finally, HMB, which uh, which we know was in again a lot of um, popular attention there for uh, a period of time. Um, uh, anything changed since you written the manual in terms of HMB, or have you changed any thoughts, or is anything new come to light since since you wrote the manual? Uh, yeah, the HMB is is still doesn't have very good high quality data for. Um, in in resistance trained populations, you know, theoretically it is quite good at suppressing muscle protein breakdown. Uh, it's been used in like clinical populations, uh, you know, muscle wasting disease, things like that. Um, but there's really not much high quality data showing that it, you know, enhances performance or, or, uh, or strength. Um, theoretically, if you were, if it was be beneficial, you might would try to take it during a diet. Um, but I, I still, I don't actually recommend it on a regular basis to anyone. Uh, I would still be waiting for, you know, better, better quality evidence. All right. So moving into the, the lifestyle, behavior and lifestyle chapter, which was the final chapter in the, uh, in the manual, which is a fantastic chapter, by the way. And I, I really think it, it brought all the concepts together beautifully because I think without that last chapter, it was kind of, I know it just felt like the manual then wouldn't have been complete. But you introduced the concept of the three-tier system, which I absolutely love, to be honest. Uh, I just kind of, um, just the simplicity of it, you know, this good, uh, this best, better, and good. So maybe can you just um, touch into, I suppose first off, give us a little bit of an overview of lifestyle behavior and then get into this three-tier system. Yeah, so, you know, tracking one's macronutrients or, or calories, et cetera, all these um things that I talk about how to do in an effective manner has to be balanced with the fact that it needs to fit into your life. So understanding that nutrition is a part of our lives on a daily basis and that the process of actually trying to nail down these variables to improve your performance can cause sometimes more problems than they, than they, than they solve uh, is, is something you need to pay respect to. 
So there's a time and a place with how much accuracy you need to have with regard to tracking uh, where it will actually benefit you. And so, for example, a bodybuilder in the in con- during contest prep will want to probably precisely track protein, car- carbs, and fat. However, a strength athlete in the offseason just wants to make sure that you know protein's there, they're able to fuel their training, uh, they're having a running track of, of protein in your head. So that's where I came up with kind of the, the tier-based system of having different levels of tracking appropriate for different times and also to avoid having too rigid of an approach to dieting. So we know that uh, people who are rigid dieters seem to get um, much more negative health consequences mentally and physically uh, in terms of eating disorders, uh, poor body image, uh, higher BMI, higher body weight, and inability to keep weight lost off. Um, so trying to keep things a little more flexible and having a flexible system in place is useful to a dieter. So the three-tiered system is basically um, best, better, and good, kind of from the top down. So best might be that you're tracking your macros within a certain degree of accuracy. Better might be that you're tracking protein and calories. Uh, and then good is just calories. Uh, and then I also like to add to that that in the off-season, as I mentioned before, just tracking uh, body weight change and kind of have a running tally of, of you know, servings of fruits and vegetables and protein. Uh, essentially, when you're not in a dieting state where hunger is not uh, high and, and you can't really trust it to actually guide you the right direction, um, you when you, you have hunger uh, managed, uh, you have a good self-awareness, you're aware of your habits, and you've spent uh, you know maybe a year or longer actually on and off tracking, and you have a good handle on portion sizes, you want to see how little you can track while still you know, having an optimal diet and progressing uh, and using all those habits you've, you've gotten and, and kind of focusing on body weight change is a useful surrogate to make sure that the energy balance is appropriate. Um, and then just tracking a few other things to make sure that you've kind of ticked all your, your boxes to make sure you're in the optimal range for intakes. So moving on from the tree theory system, I have to say I love this concept of borrowing, and it was it wasn't something that I I didn't know already or or wasn't aware of, but um, I I often try and like not teach but let people know about this that instead of like because I suppose you probably went through this as well, whether it was with yourself or working with clients where people like they they really over intake food one day like and they might be on a quote unquote diet and then they're like oh I've ruined it all and it's like no 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 one day is not they're doing like. Have, think about this more. So, like, I love the way you're like, think about this more than just a 24 hour period. Have a look at your week and then this idea of borrowing. So, let's say if, if, if we knew that over seven days your average caloric intake was going to be 2,500 calories, it's like, well, there's nothing to stop you having one day where it's 3,000 calories and then you just make up by only taking it 2,000 the next day. But over the, but over the week, the average still, uh, goes out to 2,500, which is very liberating if, if you're going to have like a social event or something like that. So, Maybe just briefly touch on borrowing. I suppose I know I summarized it there, but um, like, how do you kind of utilize that maybe with your clients? Yeah, I think uh, the important aspect of borrowing is that you need to have some type of limit on it, because um, the difference between rigid and a flexible dieter is that a flexible dieter kind of does this naturally. If a rigid dieter tends to screw up, binge, and then cut out all calories the next day, and then kind of prompt the next binge, uh, it comes kind of a self self fulfilling prophecy. So what I use is a 20% uh, cap, which is kind of an arbitrary, uh, you know, line in the sand, but seems to work pretty well in practice. Is that on no single day will you reduce your calories by more than 20%, and this allows you to go, okay, I've got, 
you know, it's the holiday season. I've got a work party and a family party on Friday and Saturday. So if I drop my calories by, you know, 20% on, you know, three days earlier in the week, then I can give those calories to the Friday and Saturday intakes and give myself more of a buffer. Uh, and then just kind of try to, and then also I can drop my tier level. So I can just go all the way down to say either, uh, you know, good or better and just kind of make sure I'm getting enough protein in and, and then just focus more on calories because I know, you know, A, I've added calories to my day. So hitting my macros is kind of out the window. And B, the proportion even, if I was to look at it, percentages are going to be way off too because the foods available to me at this party are probably not going to be the same kind of foods I would eat at home. So it's a simple process of, like you said, if you've got, you know, 3,000 calories is your target, you can take 20% of that, 600. And let's say Monday through Wednesday, you, you go down to 2,400 calories. So you've saved up a fair amount of calories now. You've got, uh, you know, another, I guess that's 900 calories, or sorry, 1,800 calories to play with that you can spread between Friday and Saturday on top of your 3,000 allotted, and your weekly intake will be the same. And so long as it's not happening all the time, um, you, you'll probably be all right. You know, you're going to lose, lose a bit of body fat early in the week, gain a little bit later in the week, and it'll all kind of even out, uh, and it won't backtrack you in your goals. But it will allow you to integrate your diet with your social events in life, which I think is a much healthier approach. Yeah, great stuff. And just a final piece then to uh, to um, this section in the behavior and lifestyle. You spoke about tracking your diet um, with habits and your body weight. Um, so I, I thought that was it was definitely interesting. And again, I can appreciate like you, you you're very you know not don't mean like you were stressing as in like you were like pretty stressing, but you were. Still getting the point across. This was for people again who felt confident that that, that they could make this step in in being able to kind of judge their food intake um, and not have to like cal- count calories or calculate their macros and, and using this idea of some of their habits and their body weight as markers to go by. So maybe just we'll touch on that and then after that, then it's we're, we're literally just got one or two other little things. Um, obviously speaking about family and social environment and, and stuff like that. And that's all I have for you today. But Maybe just touch on that then, uh, Eric, you know, tracking your diet with your habits and your body weight. Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, the um, you've got your tier-based system where you're basically just kind of letting letting go of the amount of precision and what variables you're, you're tracking to the same degree. Um, but I like to use a system where someone goes through the process of tracking macronutrients and calories in various iterations. Hmm. And once they become acutely aware of the uh, portion sizes and the macronutrient contents of food, and they can associate different foods with different macronutrients. Um, eventually, we want to get to the point where either in a maintenance phase or a gaining phase, uh, they are now not tracking anymore and capitalizing on the fact that they've developed these habits. And I think the best way to do that is to just track body weight. And body weight becomes a surrogate for energy balance, as if you were gaining at the appropriate weight uh, rate, I should say, gaining weight at the appropriate rate, which you know, for someone who is an intermediate or advanced level lifter, uh, is going to be no more than say, you know, 1% of their body weight per month. So you're looking at say two or three week averages and trying to see, you know, say half a pound increase depending on your, your, your body weight and body mass. Um, and looking to steadily gain weight and be in a small surplus and then just track whichever variables you feel you don't, you haven't developed the best habits around. So maybe you're really good at eating the same foods, um, but you don't get enough fluid. So you would actually, uh, keep a constant uh, record kind of in your head of, of the fluid intake or you grab a you know, two-liter bottle and go right in the direct drink this twice per day. Or let's say you throw in some automatic habits if I bring two pieces of fruit with me to lunch 
And then every dinner I make sure that we have, you know, a big salad so I get my fruits and vegetables in. Or like myself, I keep a running tally of protein in my head to make sure I get an appropriate intake on a day-to-day basis. But the primary variable tracked and actually recorded is body weight to make sure that uh, you're in an appropriate surplus because all the other things you're doing um, are have been reinforced through the habit of actually tracking previously. And uh, you've got to think that after months and months or even years sometimes of weighing and tracking food and writing down macronutrients that you develop some habits. Uh, and if you haven't, then you're not doing it right. So uh, it's time to capitalize on that and uh, think about the actual um, how much can I get away with not tracking and still being optimal. And it's probably a lot more than you think. That's the whole point. Uh, so this is all only appropriate when you're not actually in the throes of contest prep hunger, yeah. uh, when your signals are telling you to eat as much as possible. So it's important that this is utilized in a state of energy balance or maybe just a mild cut um, or you know a weight gaining phase. And then it's all important to adjust when, when, when things don't go your way because you are tracking body weight. And you just adjust it how full you are after each meal. Like if you're gaining weight too quickly, all right, I need to be a little less full, a little less more satisfied after each meal. If I'm not gaining weight, then I need to focus on being a little more stuffed after each meal and kind of auto-regulating your intake based on your hunger and satiety levels. Yeah, and these, these are all things you cover in great detail in, in the book, in the final chapter of the book. Eric, just something just quickly, and it's probably not really a, a question you can give a quick answer to, maybe, maybe something we can speak about in future podcasts is, just in terms of like, because you do work an awful lot with very intrinsically driven people because if you're working with people who are going to step on stage or who are going to be on a, a, um, a powerful platform, you know, you, usually they are more intrinsically driven and, and are, are more uh, adherent to dietary plans. But when you get someone who's a lay person, like, do you still like set out calories for them and teach them about calories and then in terms of the macros you get those people trying to weigh their food so they appreciate their portion control or like how does it go with maybe more of a lay person um and if 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 you do do that like how do you follow up that they're and let's say they're not doing it from a habit standpoint or they just can't get a habit what, what would you do then i know it's you probably can't really answer that in the time we've left but um like do, do you do you work with any lay people, and, and like, would you still educate them on what, like, what, like, what calories are and portion sizes and weighing their macros, and how, how would that look? There's a few questions in there, but for one, I, I, am a bodybuilding and powerlifting coach, so I don't work with lay people. Okay. Um, however, I was a personal trainer for years, and I am a personal trainer educator, and uh, this is the muscle and strength pyramid. So these are definitely books written for people looking to improve their outcomes. Uh, through nutrition and training for the goals of gaining muscle and strength. Mm. So there's definitely a certain assumption of, uh, of the, the, their idea to, to what they should manipulate. This is not a book written for general population by any means. So I think yeah. that's an important caveat to point out. Definitely. However, some of these uh, tools can be adapted to some degree. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, asking people to track macronutrients for an extended period of time it's going to backfire. It's going to make them feel like they have an insurmountable task to, even, to get to their goals. Even, even calories, though, I find. And then the other thing is that the calorie calculators, like my fitness pal, can be so way off. Yeah. Um, but so typically what I do or did when I, when I worked with uh, general pop people is I just ask them to track what they're currently doing for a week or two. Okay. Um, and this is really good because it makes them become aware of their habits and what they're doing. And I also ask them to track things like their emotions, how they feel, uh, what is driving them to eat when they do, 
And typically one of two things will happen. Either they will, their body weight will continue to continue to go up or stay the same. Uh, it'll follow a similar pattern of what they were doing previously, or they'll start losing weight. Um, now if they start losing weight, that tells you that they're doing a lot of unconscious kind of mindless eating. And as soon as they actually become more mindful and pay attention to what they're doing, so they have to actually write it down. Um, that's, that's better. So that indicates two different things. You know, if they are still gaining weight and that's not changed at all, maybe it is more about just what are you eating? What foods are, are in your life and, and, um, and what are your eating schedule? Cause even when you pay attention to it, you're still gaining weight. We need to find a way to uh, make you fuller. Uh, while eating less calories and work on some more satiating foods and work on some strategies to reduce total consumption of calories and, you know, maybe make some food replacements with lower calorie options. However, in the latter case where they start losing weight just from being more mindful, uh, you can definitely have a more uh, structure-based approach. So let's create a daily structure. Let's uh, make some changes to your life so you have time to cook. Um, you know, let's let's set up some some operational rules around when you eat and when you don't. Uh, it's kind of draw some hard lines in the sand there so that, right, I'm not going to snack between meals, et cetera, uh, and I'm going to eat not in front of the television. I'm going to eat with the family sitting down. I'm going to drink a glass of water and eat my salad before I eat my main dish. Those type of things tend to be very effective with someone who just, when they start paying attention, loses weight. Um, the other group needs to be more ed- educated about nutrition and, uh, and shown, you know, this food is going to be less calories, uh, you can work it in and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the approach becomes different. But in neither case would I probably recommend tracking calories and, and protein per se um, for very long. But it would still be a portion of it because I do think yeah, the yeah. process of, of even spending a few weeks or even a month you know, tracking and, and learning how calories and foods fit together would then allow them to just then move towards uh, selecting food based on uh, their value versus actually – um, quantitatively tracking it. So I normally use kind of this approach where we start with track on your own without modifying. Then we'll look at that. Then you'll write yourself a meal plan based on what we think would be an appropriate intake. So you've tracked for, let's say, a month. Uh, we know you're slowly gaining weight, eating 3,000 calories on average, you know, and I've helped you track and ensured accuracy. Uh, and all right, let's put you on a 2,500-calorie diet. And now let's build a meal plan with some structure and using foods you like, uh, and I'll help you kind of situate it, make replacements, help you get to the right amount of protein intake that would probably be appropriate to help you maintain lean body mass, and then you're going to fall while. And then once, once you get a good feel for that and you've written yourself multiple meal plans and that's really helped you learn this process, then we can kind of go to a more freestyle approach where you can swap foods in and out so long as the calorie count is roughly the same. Uh, and then we can move towards get, getting completely away from tracking at all. So that you know could be a three to six month period depending on the individual. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of similar to myself is that, and I, again, it's probably something I picked up from yourself too, and, and even probably even with Danny. I, I think I heard Danny say one time he thinks that every person at some stage, no matter who they are, should should like actually just track and 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 weigh their food just just for like a little period of time. So it, it gives them an appreciation of like portion control and and the caloric content and something Definitely. and it gives them those skills and to, to go forward um, so that, that's kind of what I was doing with some people was like just for like a two week period to weigh their food and to give them to give them sort of this appreciation of like a portion control and then the calories in one portion versus another so things like I, I'd say like you know if you took like 200 grams of minced lamb 80-20 you know 80 protein 20 fat it's like 800 calories whereas if you took 
you know, 200 grams of monkfish, it's like 190 calories, or of chicken, it's like 250 calories. Like the caloric content is so much different, even though from a mass standpoint and, and even almost the same size in terms of volume, it's it's almost the same. Or even if you took like a, like just broccoli in terms of the content it would fill in your stomach. Just see yeah, again, be more mindful of the food choices too. So, but when you said tracking to uh, just there with that, what what did you have them track, Eric? Like initially when they came so, in. Yeah, what they ate, how much, and when, and then we would get the uh, the calorie and macronutrient amounts from that. Okay. But without any instruction to change it. So the first thing is they just write down what they eat and we go over it together. And then they would, then we'd figure out where they need to go from there and then they'd write themselves a meal plan from that. So they so, still wouldn't be trying to hit macronutrient targets. So it's basically just getting their awareness up initially. Exactly. Okay, so closing out, you, you speak about eating out. Um, and again, eating out kind of depends if you were pre-contest or post-contest or gaining. So, I mean, the listeners can kind of read that there. You also touched a bit on alcohol. Um, but then finishing up here, I think social environment was critical. So this idea of getting your family involved or your, your loved ones or someone you're sharing your living environment with and getting them on board, which I don't even your living environment, people you're sharing your life with, um, and getting them on board with what you're doing. Because obviously, you know, when you're gaining or particularly when you're cutting, you know, it can be, uh, you know, you've, I know I've only done one big kind of body transformation photo shoot, but when you're cutting, it definitely can be a, not your best at times when you're very hypocaloric, but you speak about the importance of getting, you know, your family involved and get, getting support from them and keeping them sort of in the loop as to what you're doing. And then, you know, the communication with that. And then finally, just, I thought really nice way you finish up was on helping others and how to do that in a, in a very, um, honorable type way rather than sort of a condescending way. So maybe speak about the importance of getting your family and friends involved in your, you know, physique um, preparation, or if you're part of for getting ready for your, you know, your meets, and then and then helping others along the way in terms of you know younger trainees who are kind of coming up and they need that advice. Yeah, sure, and I think this is really critical, regardless of whether you're just someone's general pop trying to eat a healthier diet, or whether you're actually in the throes of contest prep as a bodybuilder. Is just you know the loved ones you interact with and who you would be involved with socially, just being transparent with them. And letting them know what, what you're at, what you're doing, and why, with a really big emphasis on why and why it's important to you. Because it can be so much more difficult when you don't have the support of your loved ones. And um, I think a lot of people get confused between um, support and understanding and liking. And your family doesn't need to like bodybuilding or uh, appreciate the sport like you do, but they do need to understand that it's important to you and that you would like their support and you would appreciate that. And that's when you're much more willing or much more likely to get, um, you know, them, them behind you. They don't need to become fans of, of you know, Kai Green to, to, to be a little more supportive when, when a family meal comes up and, and you are a little more tight with your portion control than, than you would be normally. Uh, they just need to understand that you're doing something that is important for you, it's difficult, and you would appreciate their support. Uh, and I think that's that's important regardless of whether you're going to get on stage in a speedo or whether you're just trying to improve your health and you know come down to a you know a healthier body fat range uh, or you know kind of start turning turning around on, on the path you've been on if you're looking and you're finding yourself obese and at a higher risk of of having a you know disease. So yeah, it's an absolutely critical process and um, doing it in a way where you don't have expectations on them and where you're not 
telling this the way it's going to be and you need to support me. It's not, it's, it's more of, uh, trying to include them in the process and, uh, you know, ask for their, their respect and acknowledgement and, and care and, and in a, in a sensitive way and understanding that you are changing things and that you're kind of stepping outside of what was done. But so long as they understand why it's important to you and that it is, um, then, uh, that, that often goes better than just being completely quiet about it, uh, or surprising someone. Uh, that's when you typically don't get the support. So I think that's very important. I, I, um, just we move on there, one, one line here I, I really liked as well, I thought it was very important, um, is being emotionally healthy and being clear with your needs and expectations is not the same as acting as though you are entitled to different treatment because you voluntarily cho- chose to get on a bodybuilding stage, which I definitely think can happen. You know, a lot of people are all like, you don't understand like I, how the training and, and this and that, and you're like, Listen, you're the one who made this decision, so don't be playing this like victim card. It's your your decision to go through this or not. Like, it, don't don't be taking it out on other people. Yeah, I I don't respond well when when a competitor tells me like my partner was sitting there just eating fast food in front of me, and I'm going, so what? Like you, you chose you, you to die. Yeah, you do this. Yeah. Yeah, like people are gonna do what they do around you. The world doesn't stop because you decided you want to you know flex and dream tan. Um, so suck it up princess. That's kind of, uh, <laughs> my approach. Um, I mean that, that's a little harsh and, and all that, and maybe even a little sexist the way I said princess and not prince. But, uh, I, I think I get emotionally charged when people expect others to change for them. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's really just not an emotionally healthy thing to do. Like if you want to, if you want to diet and you want to uh, get on stage, awesome. You know, obviously I'm a huge supporter of that. I've done it nine times myself and I've helped hundreds of people do it. But don't expect the people around you to change because you have this set of goals. And it's especially kind of a little like just limited in your viewpoint to me when there's people who literally are starving in other countries who can't get access to food and you're voluntarily doing it, complaining because someone else is eating pizza and you can't have it. Mm. Like, come on, you know, let's let's just be a little more aware of of of, of, of other humans and, and be more respectful to everybody. Um and sure, it is harder if people around you are eating pizza. And you could do things to manage your environment, but don't try don't try to manage people. You know, that's kind of my perspective on it. And it won't be well received. Um, and when it is well received, there's going to be resentment underneath it, which you don't want in your life. Definitely. definitely. And I suppose speaking about sort of resentment there, just going on to this final part of helping others, and you touched on um, unsolicited advice, which I really, really liked, you know, and also the, the other part of challenging convention. But, I really like the way you worded it uh, because you do see this an awful lot when people sort of come for advice and then you see a lot of people being very condescending in the advice they give to them as if, like, how stupid can you be? When really that's a time when we need to reflect and remember that we too were, you know, a quote-unquote newbie and, and we're very green uh, in our in our sort of journey on our career in this game of physique and getting stronger and just trying to make ourselves better through the medium of you know strength training and all the all the means of fitness and strength and conditioning so i really i really enjoyed the last few paragraphs so maybe just touch into this thing of helping others and unsolicited advice yeah and this is an easy thing to do in person because you know when you're talking face to face with someone you can get a feel of their oh they're just they have the same goals as me they're just a little earlier on their journey or a little uh, earlier in their exposure to, you know, good information. Uh, and you can, you know, you can field questions that, that might be really obvious to you or things you'd figured out a long time ago or 
you think are kind of behind the times or behind the science, and you can do it in a compassionate and understanding way. I think that's that's the easier thing to do and the thing you should do. However, when I see people who really don't kind of respect this kind of no-duh kind of thing, like, oh, don't treat people who are trying to learn. Like, you would never see a teacher in a classroom being like, you idiots don't know how to do multiplication? Morons. And then, like, teaching them how to do multiplication tables. That, that seems ridiculous. However, we do this on social media all the time. Like, uh, because you, you've cultivated this whole little niche group of people who are uh, all on, on board with, you know, taking a, a science kind of first look at supplements or diet, um, the post will start something like, oh, these silly keto zealots, you know, like anyone who thinks you need to be on a high-fat, low-carb diet is, is so such an idiot. And, like, for some reason that's okay. But if your your brother or your mother came to you and said, hey, what do you think about, you know, a high-fat, low-carb diet? Is that, is that the way to go? You'd probably speak to them in a much more respectful manner. Yeah. Um, and I think we just forget that when someone reads a big post like that, they're going to take it personally. It's appearing on their computer, in their feed, and you're talking about people being stupid with the beliefs that they hold. So I think you really need to step away from that approach because that just pushes people away and entrenches them. It certainly won't uh, leave them open to learning from you uh, and and respect the fact that people, you know, they believe things because based on the in- information they're exposed to and the faculties they have, and not everyone's going to have the same level of information. So you have to be respectful of the fact that um, people are trying their best and often have the same goals as you. Um, and if you, I mean, just from a utilitarian perspective, if you're making people feel stupid, they're not going to want to listen to you. So yeah. that probably shouldn't be the way you should go. No, definitely. And I, I highly advise when people, uh, I, I'd imagine a lot of people have already read the book, and if they haven't, I mean, I've said this millions of times. Well, that's a lie. I've said millions of times, but I've said it a lot and lots of times. <laughs> you know people say I've said it millions of times. I have said it. So I've said it a lot of times. The training and the nutrition books are absolutely fantastic. And they actually are... Uh, so your the, the nutrition manual, the training manual, um, I probably st- I, I do recommend the Renaissance Diet too. Um, th- th- these are actually the the top books I give to all sort of the when I was teaching these were all the books I recommended to students because they were just at that perfect level of where they would really bring up their knowledge and awareness to uh, like the next level, but they weren't so academic or far ahead that they couldn't make heads or tails of it, and the advice in them was so practical too. But uh, just on on, uh, on this behavior and lifestyle part, I mean, the listeners I'd highly advise, even if they have read the book, to go back and read it again. Because as I said to you before we started today, even just rereading and going through this, um, you know, you kind of different things stand out to you. You know, and that's why, as we were saying as well offline, that's it's always a good thing to reread books because you're a different person every time you reread a book, and you'll always take away something new from it. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. I'm uh, honored to hear that. So, uh, Eric, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, my, my computer just about didn't shit the bed for this hour. There was a few little intermittent uh, <laughs> quiet parts there and out. So hopefully Skype recorder picked up those. But we didn't, I definitely didn't miss any major parts. So I could hear everything. Um, so, listen, as always, I really, really appreciate your time, man. It's, uh, you know, you're just, it's, uh, it, it, honor is the only word we refer to. It's an absolute honor to always have time to talk to you and, and you know, I really appreciate you, you know, getting up early and, and sacrificing an hour or so out of your day to, to speak to me on, and be on the podcast. So I really, truly appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. And it's a, it's a great opportunity to get, um, you know, good information out there. So thank you. Brilliant. So I'll put everything in the show notes, uh, all of uh, Eric's details and how you can contact him. And um, 
uh, definitely put in uh, the contact details for uh, 3D Muscle Journey as well. Um, and apart from that, if there's anything else you need to uh, say, Eric, or you want me to put in the show notes, you just let me know. Is there any closing remarks or do you have any seminars or any upcoming projects coming up or down the line or anything like that? Well, yeah, if you're in New Zealand, uh, we're going to be doing the Holistic Performance Nutrition Conference. Myself and Brett Contreras and uh, some some great people from here in New Zealand oh, are going wow. to be When's that? speaking at that. When's that? That's coming up in November. I believe nice. it's the yeah, late November. You can find the details if you were to go to Ticketmaster you, you, and search you, Holistic you, Performance met, Nutrition Conference. You, you've met Brett before, haven't you? Definitely. Oh, yeah. He's, he's the man. He recently moved to San Diego. He did, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That's brilliant. Yeah, so uh, yeah, um, uh, definitely uh, shoot me over the details and I'll put it in because we do have listeners, or I have weeks to me, I'm going to be I do have listeners in Australia and New Zealand, so uh, I'll definitely plug that into the show notes for sure. Yeah, it is uh, September 18th here here, here in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, great stuff, great stuff. Okay, uh, Eric, just stay Sorry, on for no, no, November, November 18th. Yeah, I was, I, was just about to say, <laughs> I was just about to say, uh, November, yeah. Anyway, but uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll get that to Sean's. But Eric, just stay online here real quick, and I'll just wrap over. So, guys, fantastic episode. We finally finished off our uh, nutrition uh, series with Eric. You know, great knowledge as always, and um, really appreciate you share this out and leave reviews and do all that good thing to help pump up the podcast. But uh, for now, guys, take care, be well, and as I say at the end of uh, end of every show, stay strong. Mm-hmm.